Welcome to the Nach Daily, a Congregation Ahavas Torah initiative. We have fallen a little bit behind schedule, so today I'm going to cover two prakim, Yud Bet and Yud Gimel. We'll still be a little bit behind, but we'll catch up in due course. I want to make sure that we can focus on these prakim, particularly Perak Yud Gimel, chapter 13, which is very important. In Perak Yud Bet, we read a speech delivered at some point by Shmuel. It's not exactly clear when and where, but uh, it's a very powerful speech where Shmuel criticizes the nation for choosing a king. He makes it very clear. It's kind of a heartbreaking speech that the people have rejected him. He says, who, who have I offended? Who have I wronged? Who have I stolen from? And one certainly feels bad for Shmuel in this moment. But he says, not only have you rejected me, you rejected Hashem. That by choosing a, K, a lowercase k king, you're always inevitably going to be rejecting the uppercase k king, which is Hashem. And Shmuel chastises them for that, but it's too late for them to change their ways. At this point, the ship has left the port. The kingship has been established. And so Shmuel is trying to encourage the people to uh, be on guard uh, as they have a king now to continue to follow the ways of Hashem and not be led astray uh, as a result of this king. Much more to say about that parak. Let's put it aside for right now. In the interest of time, I really want to focus on Perak Yud Gimel. Perak Yud Gimel gives us uh, a sense, together with other clues that we've had throughout the Sefer, that the Plishtim are really this dominant force in the land of Kinaan at this time. They've got garrisons all over the place. Um, they have an army that includes the absolutely massive amount of chariots, 30,000 chariots. There's a huge amount of chariots. If you compare it to other uh, uh, numbers of chariots that we see elsewhere in Tanakh, the amount that, that Paro in Egypt had, etc., it's clear this is a huge army. Um, who are the Plishtim, just by way of background? The Plishtim are not among the, the, the Canaanite local population that the Bnei Israel were uh, required to drive out upon initial entry into the land. The Plishtim uh, are a, a seafaring people. They come from the Aegean Sea. They set up on the southern coast of, 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 of Israel, of Canaan, and uh, they're... they're concentrated in five major cities, Aza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gat. Uh, but as I said, they are, by this time in Sefer Shmuel, deeply entrenched, have made major inroads throughout the land of, uh, of Israel. We're also told at the end of Parak Yud Gimel that not only are they extremely powerful just in terms of numbers and weapons, but they also control the means of metalworking, of, of weapons production. And the Israelites are... Uh, find themselves without so much as a sword. So the Bnei Israel are hugely disadvantaged in their fight against the Plishtim, who have the upper hand, uh, to say the least. And yet, this is really one of Shaul's primary tasks as the king of Israel. Uh, It is to be their savior and to lead them against the Plishtim, albeit undermanned and underarmed. And so in this parak, we learn that Shaul maintains a small army, a few thousand men. One division of that army, a thousand men, is under the control of Shaul's son, Yonatan. Yonatan goes and he attacks the Plishtim, uh, one, one particular garrison. Uh, and as a result, the Plishtim mobilize a massive army. And this massive army is so frightening that Shaul's forces, already few in number, begin to disband and to desert and to hide. And so Shaul is really in a poor position. What, what's Shaul supposed to do in this moment? Well, we are told that uh, Shaul was given the instruction by Shmuel to just wait. 
He was told, go to Gilgal, wait until Shmuel comes. He's, he was told, it's going to take a, seven days until Shmuel will come. And when Shmuel arrives, he's going to offer particular Karbanos sacrifices to Hashem, and then presumably Shaul will go and will fight the, the Plishtim. However, Shaul sees this huge Plishti force gathering, and he sees his own forces dwindling, and Shmuel is nowhere to be found. And the pressure mounts and mounts. And ultimately, Shaul himself offers the carbon that Shmuel was supposed to bring. He doesn't wait for Shmuel. Just after Shaul gives this carbon in the absence of Shmuel, oh, Shmuel arrives. And Shmuel asks, What happened? And Shaul explains the predicament that he was in, that he that was under enormous pressure. As this army was mounting, they could have attacked at any moment. His own men were fleeing, and Shmuel was nowhere to be found. And so Shaul says, I, I, I willed myself to give the carbon in your stead so that at least we would be prepared. Uh, we will have given a carbon prior to going to fight the Plishtim. And in response to that, Shmuel absolutely tears into to Shaul. And with Shaul's kingship still in its infancy, Shmuel tells him that he has acted foolishly, and had he only waited, had he only waited for Shmuel, so Shaul's kingship would have lasted for generations. But now that you made this mistake, that you didn't follow my word, says Shmuel, so you will lose the kingship, and someone else is going to rule in your stead. This this, this kingship that was just in, still in its infancy was now completely undermined and ruined. Now. I know Shaul made a mistake here, but reading the Perak, you have to ask yourself, was what he did really so bad? It's hard not to feel sympathetic for Shaul. Think of the enormous pressure that he was under. Why is Shmuel being so harsh? And why is this moment so consequential? Those are the questions that, that we need to grapple with. And so here is the deal. Here's how you have to understand what's going on here, you have to contextualize it uh, in, in a broader picture. You have to recognize the broader implications of this moment. As we made clear, even in our brief treatment of Perak Yudbet, appointing a king inevitably means a move away from God. Uh, and it, it complicates the relationship between B'nai Israel and Hashem. And the fear is that the people will follow the, the, the king, lowercase k, king, uh, and abandon Hashem. And so, this moment at Gilgal was meant to prove a very important point. It was meant to make a very important point. Shaul and the people were supposed to wait patiently for Shmuel. Despite the enormous danger posed by the Plishtim, they were supposed to have faith and demonstrate their fidelity to Shmuel, but more importantly, to Hashem. And then Shmuel would arrive, he'd offer these sacrifices, and then this outmanned band, band of, uh, of men, greatly underarmed, these people, these ragtag people following Shaul would go and they would have had success destroying the Plishti forces. And in, in that victory, they would, be, they would have the clarity that the deliverance came not from human hands, not by the hands of the king, but it would have been delivered uh, by Hashem. That would have been this miraculous victory, waiting patiently 
despite the pre- pressure, despite the fear, and then going, destroying the plishtim, undermanned, underarmed, that would have been this incredible Kiddush Hashem, and it would have established Shaul's kingship because it would have made clear that his rule and all the success that would follow would flow from Hashem and not from Shaul's own hand. But Shaul gives in to the pressure, something that we know he's kind of uh, uh, liable to do. He, he, he gives in to pressure. And here he fails to listen to Shmuel. He missed this critical opportunity and as such, his kingship was doomed to failure. That's the broader implications of this moment. And to, to drive home this point that Shmuel is, is not, of course, overreacting, but that Shaul really made a, a huge, a dire mistake. So the text implicitly draws a comparison between this failure, this moment, and another moment of failure in Tanakh. When else have we seen a great leader uh, tell the people uh, to wait for him for a particular amount of time, and then the people uh, fail to do so and sin greatly. Bingo, chet ha'egel, right? Moshe tells the people, I'm going to go up on Harsina. He tells Aaron, he tells this kind of secondary um, um, leader to wait uh, together with the people. Um, but Aaron, due to enormous pressure placed on him and understandable angst, right? It comes from, from uh, an understandable place of real fear um, as a result uh, gives in to the crowd and makes this enormous mistake of fashioning uh, the Egel the Hazahav, the golden calf, and, uh, and the results follow. Here too, the same kind of story plays out. Shmuel tells the people to wait for him. Uh, Shmuel, in this, in this case, the, the Aaron figure is, is Shaul. Shaul is under enormous pressure due to understandable angst, fails to wait, and as a result... Uh, this tremendous, uh, you know, there was tremendous fallout. Something very negative happened in the place of what would have otherwise been something very, very positive. So once you put these stories together, uh, the text is clearly telling us, and, and, and it alludes to these texts, there's a lot of liter- literary allusions, as we would expect, from this story uh, to the story of the Chira Egal, not just the broad kind of narrative, um, like a broad sketch of the narratives, not only did they... Uh, correspond, but textually, there are a lot of subtle ways that the text alludes here to the story of the Chita Egel. <clears throat> and by putting these stories together, the text is telling us very clearly that Shmuel is not overreacting, but rather, Shoal has made a grave, grave error, for which, unfortunately, he will pay dearly. That's it for today. Chazak ve'ematz and happy learning.